Dotnet Rocks episode 851 with guest Tomas Petricek. Recorded live Friday, March 1st, 2013. This episode is brought to you by Teller, offering the best in developer tools and support. And by Franklin's.net, makers of Gesture Pack, a powerful gesture recording and recognition system for Microsoft Connect for Windows developers. Details at GesturePAK.com. And by Diatom, developers of the .NET Rocks mobile app, available now for Windows Phone 7, iPhone, and Android phones. And now, here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much, and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell, West Coast, East Coast, all over the world. You know it, .NETrocks.com. What's up, Richard? We've got mobile apps. We do. Yeah. We have been uh, working on a clandestine project. Yes. We've been developing a mobile app for .NET Rocks for the iPhone, for Android, and for Windows Phone. Mm-hmm. And they're all out and in the stores now. Uh, yep. And it was our partners at Diatom Enterprises that made it happen. Uh, your business partner, Kent Alstad, Indeed. although you're not part of Diatom, this is a separate thing that he's doing, and he's basically doing cross-platform mobile development. Well, you know, we sold Strangeloop, so right. we, officially Kent and I are no longer partners. Right. Our partnership has been dissolved, uh, for better or worse. But and he's got so, a great yeah, team. He's always, uh, but we've always had a relationship with Diatom, and yeah, they're doing cross-platform mobile development, and they put together these three great apps for us now. Uh, hopefully, we'll get across to the other shows, but at the moment, it's just for .NET Rock. But what they have now is they have a podcast template app. So if any podcasters out there want to build cross-platform apps specifically for their podcasts, and you know they've got the Discus comments engine in there, they've got uh, all sorts of great features for us and for, for the listener as well. You know, bookmarks so that you can pick up where you left off on any show. It's great stuff. Absolutely. So, so anyway. uh, yeah, go to your, your appropriate app store, whichever phone you're using, search for .NET Rocks and or PWOP, P-W-O-P, yep. and you'll find our app and you can download it and get uh, and have your own icon for our show. And if you'd like to get a hold of Diatom? Diatomenterprises.com. The link will be on the website. Great. Hey, it's time for Better Know Framework. All right, buddy, what do you got? Well, what I have is an article from .NET Magazine, and uh, it's an article by uh, Dan Frost of 3EV, and he comes up with a list of skills the best developers should have. This hmm, is okay. 10 things web developers, and I would say developers, any developer, must know to become truly amazing. tinyurl.com slash amazing dev. Let's just go through these because it's quick. Sure. One. Coding, don't cut it anymore. Interesting. Yeah. We're in a world where coding is becoming less impressive. Everyone builds sites. Some of them code, but you don't have to. It's just no longer just the nerdy who can create sites, apps, and features. So it's not just coding. So the big caveat is number two. He says, I'm going to talk negatively about developers, but I think I'm allowed because I am one. Also because at least one thing I talk about here is true of many of the developers I meet. Although their work is great and they know their code, times are competitive, need to have an edge. And this is A, be more techie, and B, be much more human. Interesting. Be much more human. Be more human than techie. 
Interesting, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Number three is what the internet says. Googling for essential web development skills brings up what you'd expect. Framework knowledge, X, browser, CSS, and JS. They list frameworks you should know, platforms you must be writing for, and new trends you should be keeping an eye on. These are a media. They're the stuff we build with, but they aren't what gives a project success. A developer can understand every detail of the system, tell you every feature of an API and a new CSS technology, but still produce something unusable. They need to understand their medium, but also the audience, the users, the team, developers. They need to understand how their medium fits into the world and what effect it has. Number four is the things we build with. And uh, he recently wrote down a list of everything we use to build sites, manage hosting, get stuff done so that people joining could have a cheat sheet of technologies to learn in the first few weeks. He says, we were taking it as read that people knew these things. So to give new recruits a jump start, we'd list everything that we use each day. Number five, Richard, is DevOps. Aha. You know all about that. Well, and the whole, you know, for me now with Strange Loop done, my, I'm not doing any more web scaling sessions. I'm focusing on DevOps, which is really a pivot on this whole idea. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can't make a high scaling site if you don't have developer and operations working together well. And I just think it's become a requirement. So I'm totally with him here. You've got to buy in. You've got to know if you're a developer, you need to know what operations does, what's hard and what's easy. Right. And vice versa. Number six is devil fix it. Perhaps <laughs> that search for a quote, essential web developer skills, unquote, brings a nice answer from Michael Greer, the onion CTO on Quora. Laziness is refuses to do anything twice, writes a script or algorithm for it. Cowardice is thinks to test worries over load and code impact. And recklessness is tries new stuff constantly, launches same day ideas. <laughs> Nice. So be lazy, a coward, and reckless. Anyway, that's kind of funny. Uh, seven, what users want. Eight, drawing and writing. Drawing is the most direct way of communicating what stuff will be like. Developers must be able to draw their ideas on whiteboard paper and beer mats. Number nine, enjoy yourself. And what if you have to spend 10 hours solving a problem by moving a link around? Enjoy it. Yeah. Number 10, stay sharp. To bring this up to a nice round 10, you'll have one final thing. Stay sharp. Find competition. The worst kind of anything is one in isolation. Always be the worst guy in every band you're in. <laughs> I think I've heard you say that. Yeah. Unfortunately, listen to .NET Rocks is not on this list. For ah, shame. Well, you know, stay sharp is still, you know, learn yeah. new things. That falls under our category. Anyway, Richard, that's it. It's a great article, tinyurl.com slash amazingdev. Awesome. Who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 841, and that's the one we did with Jamie Wright talking about what Rails can teach .NET developers. Right. Uh, and has generated an awful lot of comments, yes, but uh, here's uh, which we've read a few of. Uh, here's another one that I, I really like from Ron, who says, uh, I came across this podcast this morning and enjoyed the topic. Having experience in both .NET and Ruby, I can honestly say that coming from Ruby on Rails and getting back into .NET, I am definitely enjoying .NET more than ever. And this is all because of the changes they made with Entity in MVC4. Nice. And in a Microsoft event, they even said that when creating MVC4, they looked at all the great things about technologies like Ruby on Rails and put them in. Yep. We just got accepted into the BizSpark program, and we're really on the fence about building our new software on the Microsoft stack. And for those who haven't heard of BizSpark, that's basically Microsoft's way of supporting startups by offering their entire stack for free for three years. And then you gradually have to pay for various things. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I almost made the decision to go with Ruby on Rails, and I'm happy to see things changing in the .NET Visual Studio world, especially Git functionality. Yeah. So, which is just a more even more recent announcement than back when we did this show. So, yeah, exciting times and much more, I think, startup friendly, working with the different types of tools that people needed, not just building everything themselves, but integrating in with the larger ecosystem as a whole. All good stuff. Thanks for your comment, Ron. I totally agree. It was really a neat conversation and uh, an interesting time to be a developer. A .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, just write a comment on the website at .NETrocks.com. And before we go any further, I need to tell you that Pluralsight provides comprehensive developer training online with over 400 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. They release 12 to 15 new courses a month and offer a free 10-day trial, giving you 200 minutes of access to their library. Pluralsight offers a wide range of developer training courses, including coverage of iOS, Java, Android, web development, and pretty much anything and everything on the Microsoft stack, including courses on F-sharp. Try Pluralsight today. Subscription plans start at just $29 a month. And with that, let me introduce our guest, Tomas Petricek. Uh, Tomas is a longtime F-sharp enthusiast, Microsoft MVP, and author of a book, Real World Functional Programming. He leads functional programming in F-sharp courses in London and New York and contributed to the development of F-sharp as an intern and contractor at Microsoft Research in Cambridge. He is currently a PhD student at University of Cambridge working on context-dependent programming languages. And welcome, or may I say welcome back, to .NET Rocks, Tomas. Thank you. Come a long way since PHP, have we not? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I wasn't writing any PHP yeah. uh, back then. Uh, that's that's uh, when we talked last time. We talked about PHP compiler for .NET, right? Um, which still actually still actually exists. There's uh, a bunch of people working on that. Mm-hmm. Um, it was called Phalanger, uh, if I recall. Yeah, yeah, correct. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's correct. Wow, but that was ages even, ago. Even back then, I wasn't writing any PHP. I was just writing the PHP compiler. Right. Um, I only wrote PHP when I wanted to prove that something is a bug. Yeah. That's funny. I don't write PHP. I write the compiler. That, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a, oh, excuse me. <laughs> Plus, PHP is available in Azure and things now as well, so yeah. it's even more widely available. Right. Yeah, yeah. The interesting thing is that the PHP compiler that I was I was involved in back then, it's actually faster than the standard one. Mm-hmm. So nice. if you want to host PHP on Azure, uh, it's probably better to do it Using using the Phalanger compiler because so use, of my use, AS, uh, use Azure websites with Phalanger to run PHP rather than just do the PHP install in yeah, the VM. Yeah, because it will cost you less money. <laughs> less money and faster. Yeah, it's it's fun factor as well. <laughs> well, we've done some. Uh, we've done many many shows on F Sharp, and uh, even talking to Don Syme. And, uh, you know, every time uh, it, there's always something new that impresses me. So when I saw, you know, the, the topic, which is a deep dive on F-sharp, I'm thinking, wow, um, we're going to go deep on F-sharp on an audio show. So <laughs> how, how, deep yeah. are, how deep are we going to go here? Well, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. Um, there's, there's a few, few recent projects I was involved in. Yeah, let's including start there. the F sharp type providers. Yeah, and uh, we're working on a new book which is called Deep Dives, uh, F sharp Deep Dives. So 
Um, yeah, let's let's see how deep we can get. <laughs> All right, well, let's start with the coolness that is type providers. Tell, we we talked about these on the on the show on the road trip with Don Simon, Keith Patachi, which mm-hmm. I, this is what blew me away, and uh, you know how you can sort of type anything. You know, type dot everything, I think, was the joke. But um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what, what what was your project that used them? And- um, so I was I was um, doing various um, type provider samples since the early days before it was before it was public. Um, one thing that I did um, is a is a type provider that lets you access World Bank data. So World Bank is this huge international organization which collects various information about countries to help mm-hmm. uh, to like um, design useful aid and so on. Mm-hmm. And they have a huge database of different indicators about countries. They have something like 8,000 indicators about all the countries in the world. Oh, man. Um, and if you, if you want to get to that data, you have to like go to their website, website. Uh, there's something for building URLs that you have to request using REST API. Then you get some unstructured unstructured JSON data that you have to parse. The, the usual business. Um, and what you can do with, with F-Sharp, with this type provider, is that you just type, um, as you said, it's uh, all driven by the dot. So you just type World Bank dot, right. and it gives you a list of all the countries in the world. And you really didn't need to create a, any kind of, uh, you know, type data for that. Any, any kind of so, WSDL or anything like that. Um, so this this particular type provider is specifically designed for the World Bank data. So that will only that will only work for this one thing. Um, and to do that, I had to write the type provider. Um, but that's that's a one specific case. And there's uh, a lot of other type providers that are useful more generally for, uh, say, different... Uh, you, can, you can use another type provider for working with any JSON that you find. Right. Uh, but this, this World Bank case, it's, I think it's really interesting because it's something that's uh, very useful, and it really shows the power when you when you t- type worldbank.usa dot, right. and it gives you a list of eight thousand different indicators. That's pretty impressive. So tell wow. so tell me though, um, how like how di- is it different from going to a WSDL file and generating a proxy? Uh huh. Um, so if you have a if you have a web service, there's actually another type provider that takes the WSDL file and gives you the type. Um, so that's uh, you can you can access Whistle in pretty similar style um, right. to how you do it in C sharp. But that's not there's, the big story. <laughs> no, and there's there's um, in in uh, in that case in the Whistle type provider, there's actually the code generation happening under the cover. You just don't see it. Don't have to run it explicitly. Okay. But with things like World Bank, there's no code generation happening whatsoever. It's directly connected to the compiler. Now, wait um, a second, though. I mean, but there's no WSDL either, right? Yeah. So, so with World Bank, um, I explicit they they provide some API where you can get the list of countries, the list of indicators. Yeah. So that type provider is connecting to the World Bank. Uh, basically, when you when you reference it in your IDE or when you 
reference it in your compiled program. Mm. Uh, it connects to the World Bank and discovers the schema or the structure dynamically. Okay. Um, but if you if you look at different kinds of type providers, um, well, the the World Bank provider works directly against World Bank, so it understands World Bank. Right. Um, but other providers, for example, um, there's there's one that lets you use JSON. Um, they get the sort of type information from from different sources. The JSON provider um, looks at uh, a set of example files that you give it. Right. Um, if you have some schema, like XML schema, you could write a type provider that it just imports the schema. So it's um, going to learn the schema from the data if it doesn't have a schema, is what you're saying. Uh, yes, that's that's what um, some of the providers do. Yeah, that's right. Jeez. Yeah. <laughs> if the data set's really big, I mean, how long can that take? Well, so that's that's been a problem for uh, a type provider that we have for CSV because okay. people really work with like gigabyte CSV file, right? Um, and to to uh, infer the or generate the types for that schema, um, you can tell the type provider, well, only read the first hundred lines, and that's usually a representative data set. That's that's enough to give you the right types because if you look at just first hundred lines, you will see that some things are date time, some things are floating point, some things are string. Right. But you can also specify the schema explicitly, and then there's no uh, inference or or learning phase, and it will work even faster. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by Telerik, makers of Kendo UI. Are you a web or mobile developer who wants to build amazing sites and apps? Looking for the best tool out there that can really improve your development work? We've got the answer for you. Kendo UI is everything you need to build HTML5 and JavaScript sites and mobile apps. In the complete integrated package, you'll find a jQuery-based tool set that includes rich UI widgets, a powerful data source, dynamic data visualizations, and blazing fast micro-templates, all backed by industry-leading professional support. Visit the official Kendo UI website at kendoui.com slash .net, that's D-O-T-N-E-T, to find out more about Kendo UI or download the free 60-day trial with support. Also, tablet show number 19 was an interview with Todd Anglin on the Kendo UI. Richard and I talked to him at length about this great tool set. That's at thetabletshow.com and look for show number 19 in the archives. And when you talk to the Telerik guys, make sure you thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. And if you've described it wrong in some way and it hits a row that isn't going to match up halfway through, what it raises some kind of error, what happens? Yeah, then, then you get uh, an exception, just like when you uh, ex like read data from a database using yep. SQL Reader and you try to match it to something wrong. It's so just going to complain. The inference, the inference uh, makes it much easier to write that code, and you're, you'll still have similar safety guarantees, like when you when you're writing all the parsing by hand. But nothing's ever absolutely certain then, because you, you get a new file and there might be something different in it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But 
um, nothing nothing is ever certain mm -hmm. when you're working with any sort of data. Yeah, so right. When you don't have a schema, there's there's always you can you can say that the schema should always return um, F sharp option type, meaning that uh, if you get a value that doesn't match, you have you you'll get some special value representing missing data. Right. But then that makes the programming much harder. Because yeah, yeah. You now you're in, rather than intercepting yeah. at the parsing point, you're intercepting within your code to go, oh, is this missing? Can the schema yeah, yeah. change? Exactly. Can the schema change dynamically if the if the uh, you know if it's perceived as being different? Um so so schema can change. Um, um it can definitely change. Um if it changes when you're developing your program, then you will see that immediately. Um, for for some of the type providers, you will mm. see that immediately in your editor. Yeah. Um, so if you if you write some code to access, I don't know, if you're parsing RSS, you might say document dot channel dot items, and if you then edit your sample file and rename items to something else like articles, mm. switch back to your editor, then it will. Uh, give you the red squiggly under the, under the items because that's not there anymore. Yeah. Um, I, I, is there an is there an option just to return nothing uh, instead of giving the a, a compiler error? Because um, it might be not you know if if things change hmm. under your under you then when you're when you're compiled you could just completely crash your app. Um. So so um. You can you can uh, use. You can like do some part of the access um, using the static generated type, and then the rest to do dynamically using mm. various checks. But generally, when you write any data processing code, you always uh, you have to find the the right uh, tuning to what extent you want to handle missing data or invalid data explicitly in your in your code when reading individual fields. Right. Um, and then beyond that, there's some errors that you just don't know what to do about, and then you have to handle the exception that will happen at runtime. Sure. Well, that's interesting, and and I guess it could work. I, and I guess maybe it probably doesn't happen all that often, does it? Where your schema just changes? Uh, yeah, the schema doesn't doesn't change as often as as you would think. Yeah, I guess that's a that's um, an outlier. There's there's it's. It's the same problem that you would have if you were writing the data access code in any other sure. language, because the code still makes some assumptions. Sure. So let, let's talk a little bit about um, some of the business value that you can add mm -hmm. with F Sharp. Uh, I notice in this book, right off the bat, in, in part one, you talk about implementing a business rules engine. Mm. So how would one go about doing that? And why is uh, why is F Sharp a, a good choice for doing a business rule engine? Yeah, well, that depends on the kind of uh, complexity and and various problems uh, that you actually want to solve. But one really powerful feature for for this is uh, the F Sharp pattern matching support, um, which is it it lets you write things like if you have some input data coming in, you can look for specific patterns or structures in the data. Uh, so if you have some, some business object that's, that's coming to your function and you want to handle case, different, different cases, um, you can write them as, as 
F sharp patterns um, on individual lines, and you don't have to write uh, any like complex methods to check that this object is actually representing customer, which has this address with specific uh, postcode or or whatever. Right. You can write that as a as a single pattern. Hmm. Yeah, that's powerful. So so that's one thing. Um, if you if you're using the F sharp pattern matching to actually express your business logic, um, which is often is often the easiest way to start because it lets you write your write your business rules in a really readable way, um, and then you can make you can you can use other F sharp features like F sharp is really great at writing domain specific languages, and Again, you can express even more complex rules by writing a DSL for for uh, modeling your rules. Right. You're just constructing keywords within F Sharp to be, define your DSL. Um, so there's there's uh, sort of various various uh, steps. The first step is when you define F Sharp types mm -hmm. or or libraries, you're actually designing a DSL or something that's very close to DSL. Okay. Because the language is very expressive, it's very clear and concise syntax, so you can really read F# -sharp code as a DSL. Um, but you can actually you can actually go beyond that. Um, one of the great new things in F# -sharp 3.0, which is the latest version, um, is that you it it has uh, a proper link style query syntax. Mm -hmm. But it's even more powerful than what you have in C Sharp because you can add your own keywords. So you can write a real, real DSL with right. your own custom keywords in a query style syntax. So what would a, a select statement look like, you know, for, for trying to derive uh, something out of a sentence? Um well so so you can write something like query curly brackets and then inside you can say for something in some data source select um something.name but that's when you're using it for normal data processing yeah um but another thing that uh you can do is that you can completely change the keywords inside so you wouldn't have any select uh statement or select construct um one one example that's uh, maybe taking that uh, a little bit too far, but it's really showing the power, is that um, Keith Keith Batocci, mm -hmm. who you talked with um, some other time. Yes. Yeah, did, we talked to him did, with Don Syme on the road. Yeah, yeah. So so he did a query a computation expression for building a .NET IL code. So you can write something like IL curly brackets, and then inside... You can write something like load and call uh, math dot round or whatever. Um, so you're you're really building your keywords are basically the keywords of the .NET IL assembly. Mm -hmm. um, and this is this is um, this is quite useful for generating code at runtime, which is why he why he has this. But it's really powerful because it shows that you can completely replace the standard keywords. You don't need keywords like select. You can instead use keywords to represent putting an int value on the stack, uh, adding two values, and so on. 
Right. And I see. So he passed those on to the IL compiler, but, and, but, yeah. and you would, um, you know, process them as, as you see fit. Yeah. So this would build, in that case, um, you just have really nice embedded DSL for writing IL instructions and you can then compile them at runtime or whatever. So can you create your own compilers with this? Is this what you're telling me? Um, so I don't, well, you could, you could, um, this is, this is really just one specific use case of the uh, F-sharp query expressions. Mm. Um, it's, it's mainly about having really nice syntax for writing things. Sure, yeah. And that can be for writing uh, data processing queries or event processing queries, or uh, which is this, this case for writing something that's uh, useful for building, building compilers. Right, in the, at least in the pre-processing part of it. Yeah, and, and if you want to emit .NET code, then yeah. you, would, sure. you could use this. Yeah, sure is interesting. And we, yeah, we hit, I think we've just hit an interesting time. It feels to me like F-sharp's hit its stride and it's sort of distinctive as to what it can do now. Well, yeah. <laughs> F-sharp, F-sharp sort of, um, it's, it's really powerful language, I think. That's that's why many people like it, and uh, I guess the the possibilities of, of doing things with F sharp haven't really been been fully explored. Like you can do so many elegant things if you have the right libraries, and there's a few there's a few really nice libraries that use F sharp for some one purpose or another. Right, but. The more people start start using it and writing interesting libraries, the more amazing uses you'll you'll have. Well, Richard, you know what time it is. Ah, oh, must be that happy time it's again. It's a happy time to give away a DevCraft Complete Collection by Telerik cool. to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. Today's winner, John Cunningham. Ah, congratulations, John. Golf clap for you, Golf sir. Golf clap for John Cunningham. He wins a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection, which is everything Telerik does in one box, a $2,000 value. If you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, and uh, sign up for the fan club. We have thousands of members. Every show, we give away a Telerik DevCraft Complete Collection, and every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology. Last year's winner uh, got a brand new PC, and he just got it today. It all came together. It's rocking sweet. Yeah, I just read his email. He, he, so he's got everything put together. He sent us the first couple of screenshots from it, enjoying the monster video card and the touchscreen and yep. the Kinect. So uh, that's Rob Corbett. Congratulations, Rob. I'm glad you're enjoying it. Exciting times. Exciting, exciting time. We also like to ask our guests what they would do with $5,000 toy-wise. So uh, what do you think, Tomas? What would you do if you could spend five grand on technology toys? ha, ha, ha. Well, that's that's a lot of money these days for yeah. for technology toys. Yeah, um, you can buy I'm one actually... of every, every one of every kind of phone. <laughs> well, I would probably buy one of every every piece of technology because my phone is very ancient. Um, it's not even a smartphone. Yeah, it doesn't work in the U.S. Ah. Uh, and my my laptop is kind of getting too old as well, and I would surely need a tablet. 
Some people would say your phone is smart because it doesn't work in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's very good at ignoring incoming phone calls. Ah, but... very... <laughs> nice. <laughs> I love that. It's a very useful feature. It's a great feature. <laughs> this phone never seems to interrupt me. I like that yeah. on the phone. Yeah. Everybody goes right to voicemail. Maybe nice. I could sell that phone for $5,000. <laughs> you just write an app that disables the phone. That'd be great. There you go. Yeah. You know, if you turn it off, it's a lot less annoying. Yeah. And cheaper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Richard Minerick sent me a note had asking me to ask you, uh, Tomas, about uh, how much you love async and await in C Sharp. Oh. <laughs> um, so that, that requires a bit of background. Yes. Um, because I just got back from the uh, Microsoft MVP Summit, mm -hmm. and there was one non-NDA talk on the async keywords in C Sharp, and... Um, there was a bunch of F-sharp programmers who had um, asynchronous workflows in F-sharp for the right. last four years. Right. Um, and we were sort of giggling all the way through the talk um, because the, the talk was about different caveats you can have in C-sharp. And there's, there's quite a few cases where it doesn't quite do what you would expect. Right. Um, and somehow... Uh, most of them don't really apply to F-sharp. So the F-sharp async model, it's actually very similar to what C-sharp has, but there's a few minor, minor differences that look like they make it, make it much simpler to use. So I think that the C-sharp async and F8, it's really important thing, mm -hmm. and it's, it's great that it's available in C-sharp. Um, and it also makes interop between C-sharp and F-sharp even easier because you have the same asynchronous programming model. Um, but somehow I'm still, I'm still more happy with using F-sharp async. So, I mean, to your point then, I can have C-sharp code that uses async and await calling to F-sharp functions and they're going to run well? Is that really when you talk about interop, what it means? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so if you're writing some sort of concurrent system in F Sharp, yeah, um, F Sharp also has this agent-based programming model, which is really nice for that kind of things. Right. Mm -hmm. So, if you write some agent-based concurrent computational engine in F Sharp, you can expose all the API as asynchronous or as as the C Sharp tasks, and then you can call it from your C Sharp front end, for example. And you can call it using await and async, and it will it will behave nicely. There will be no unexpected blocking of threads and so on. So that's right. that's pretty nice, and and absolutely necessary as well. Although yeah, I, yeah. I've seen more folks that are doing functional style programming in C sharp anyway. Mm. Yeah, well, I guess functional programming. Ideas like immutability or mm -hmm. or just higher order functions using link style programming, it's it's just a very very nice way to write your code regardless of what language you're using. Mm. Um, F sharp is really designed for that. So with with type inference, that really hugely simplifies your code, especially if you write uh, complex complex functions. If you ever looked at the uh, generic method definition for something like select many or join, it 
doesn't fit on a single line. Right. Um, and that's where I think if you want to do something advanced, functional, it's really worth switching to F-sharp because it's, it's designed for it. But equally, it's perfectly fine to write some functional types in F-sharp and use them in a functional way uh, from C-sharp. Okay. Um, so you can split the work between the two. And because there's, there's some really nice functional aspects in C-sharp, it actually means that it's fairly easy to call your F-sharp libraries. Mm. Yeah, so you don't have a lot. Of, it's not going to have a lot of problem interoperating between them. But I mean, you still see some advantage in C sharp. Um, yeah, well, C sharp has has much larger user base. Right. There's there's lots of tutorials. Um, there's um, lots of. Uh, it's it's the first it's the first language that Microsoft uses when they try something. Right. Um, so, yeah. It's it's the default, but uh, yeah. Are there things I, I you see C sharp do better than F sharp? Ah, uh, that's a that's a tough question for a recently converted F sharp MVP. <laughs> yes. Uh, let's see. So I'm I'm really looking forward to the to the Roslyn release. Yeah. Uh, when that becomes available eventually, uh, because. That's that's something where, I guess, doing refactoring tools for for C sharp will be really easy. Yep. Um, and we haven't quite got that far with with F sharp, um, although there there's been the F sharp open source release available for quite some time, and people use the code to build their own tools on top of the F sharp compiler. Mm -hmm. But it's not it's not as easy as it might be with Roslyn when that's when that's finished. Yeah, I think Roslyn. Well, Roslyn to me is almost starting to feel like like fusion power. It's just a couple more years away. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the that's the same feeling. But fusion power would be nice as well. <laughs> There's a geek out there somewhere. Somewhere. Somewhere <laughs> there. <laughs> but you know, I I really would like it to land. I do think people are going to get themselves in trouble with it too. Mm. That yeah, you know, it's giving people maybe too much power. Surfing the web. Yeah, you ever try to surf the web on your phone? It's a little small, especially when you're looking at a big list like the feature list of Active Reports. Oh yeah, yeah. We've been using it for 15 years. You know, the coolest new feature I think is the new Silverlight Report Viewer. What's cool about it, of course, is it's both native Silverlight for printing, but it's also got PDF support. So that really minimizes the amount of data that has to come over the wire. Makes it a lot more efficient. Well, we've been looking for a good solution for Silverlight data viewing. Yeah, it's a great product. I, I think I'm going to order it. Not on that. No, not on here. I'll go to my desk first. Active reports from Component One. Smarter components for smarter developers. So let's talk about games in F Sharp. Uh -huh. Uh, where does F Sharp help us with gaming, game creation? Um, well, you talked you talked with with Jan Kui just the other day. Yep, who's doing the server side of of F Sharp gaming? Right. Um, so that's that's definitely one huge area. Um, and F Sharp as a as a functional language, it's uh, it's really lets you express complex algorithm that you might have in games. 
Mm-hmm. Um, if you need to write some AI or some other different component, that's that's definitely one area where you could use F sharp. Um, of course, you probably well, it depends. Some some games you might write in F sharp as a whole. Um, uh, there's been there's been some work recently in the community on getting F sharp work nicely with mono game. Mm-hmm. So that seems to be like like really nice way to write to write games. Can For, you work in F sharp inside of mono? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, there's F sharp plugin for Mono Develop. Okay. Hmm. And for the recently recently announced Xamarin Studio as well. So, yeah, that's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So and, I, I, I'm I'm a guy who doesn't do game programming, so I'm, this may sound like a stupid question, but I, I I'm not sure. I'm can you, can you give me an example of specifically of uh you know something a feature that you would write in a game and where maybe any functional uh language would give me a leg up and why hmm. so so i'm also not a game programmer <laughs> um uh but i guess um well you'll you'll have to look at the f sharp deep dives book where when okay. it gets published because there's one chapter about game programming and that will actually be written by someone who's who's doing game programming. Uh, Philip Trelford. Uh, uh, I think we have um, we have. Uh, I can't pronounce properly his name without oh. looking. Okay. But um, Phil's also helping helping out with that. Okay. Um, so one sample that uh, Phil often uses um, is when you're writing some some simulation of a shooting or a. a character moving around uh, you can write that really nicely in F sharp as a computation expression or as a sequence expression where you say you, you express the behavior uh, by saying uh, wait wait 10 milliseconds move uh, in that direction wait 10 milliseconds move in that direction and um, that wouldn't be running as a as a like as a separate thread that actually blocks because that's not that's not you can't you can't write uh, a game that has a thread for every every uh shot or every creature sure um and you can you can use the f sharp computational ex- computation expression syntax to write sort of your own dsl a bit like with the queries that uh, lets you express the behavior, but then interpret the behavior using some uh, gaming engine that actually schedules things and does everything uh, at the same time without without blocking. I think I follow you. That's that's one case. The other is if you're writing some AI code where you just need to do uh, look at different positions around you. Right. Um, that's really it comes down to the, a data analysis. That's all it really is. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's that's I guess the reason why lots of the AI work in the early days was done in languages like Lisp. Lisp. Right. Sure. Uh, because it's also function language, very expressive. And uh, machine learning is also very popular among functional programmers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, machine learning is is really a big thing these days. Right. Um, and there's there's some really really huge 
projects that were using or are using F# -sharp in machine learning. One of the one of the early successes of F# -sharp was to use uh, in, in inside Microsoft Research, where they used it to write um, some fairly complicated machine learning algorithms to to rank um, advertisements on mm -hmm. Bing website, ah. and they they improved the click rate by some tiny small of percent, which actually maps to a huge amount of money if you look mm. at it with a, at the big scale. Ah. Is that just because it was faster? Um, so they had they had some internal competition, and the F# -sharp solution was the only one that actually finished. Oh. Um, so it's because it worked. Uh, <laughs> That's a good feature. Yeah, I look for uh, that. Yeah. It was also because they they were using an expressive language, so they were able to write more complicated algorithms, and they just could implement better machine learning algorithms. There's there's another thing that's related to this, um, which is that F# -sharp, uh, you can see it as a language that both programmers and uh, scientists can understand, um, because for programmers it's it's very close to .NET languages like C Sharp, but right. for scientists it's very much like mathematics, so they can write their mathematical uh, equations, encode them in F Sharp, um, and find it more more natural than. Uh, using something like C++ where you have to really think differently. Yeah, I mean, mathematics is a totally different way of coming at it. I thought you were going to say scientists use Haskell, but then, you know, that's just me. <laughs> well, some programming language or computer scientists use Haskell. Right. Uh, but Haskell is really more interesting for, I guess, programming language research. Um, and I, I use Haskell occasionally to do something, but it's when I'm when I'm in my... Uh, programming language researcher mode, and I'm trying to come up with some crazily complicated type system or something like that. So yeah, it's it's like a it's a language for language geeks, which is really saying something. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's it's great fun to do it sometimes. Um, and I think there's there's some interesting ideas that are you can easily try in Haskell, and maybe that's there's there's something that will eventually come to the other uh, more pragmatic languages mm -hmm. in some restricted form. And what do you see as the real tough hurdle here for folks trying to get into F-sharp that are I mean, typically coming from C-sharp, I imagine? Is it, uh, what, what's the change in mindset? Um, well, I guess many people are actually interested in learning F-sharp, and if you have some, some time to spend with F-sharp, then it's not actually that hard to learn it. Um, and I guess many, many people uh, find the problem more in the sort of social aspects around it. Oh, yeah. Because they, their boss tells them, you have to write this in C-sharp, and they don't get the time to learn F-sharp. But it's really not that, not that complicated. If you look at, um, there's a great new website called tryfsharp.org, where you can try F# -sharp in your web browser. It gives right. you lots of tutorials and and uh, useful teaching resources. Um, so it's really the question of of just finding the time to play with F# -sharp and then you'll actually very quickly you'll you'll benefit from that because you'll see that uh, when you need to write some really 
simple script just for yourself to do something or some simple data pre-processing tool, you can do that really easily in F-sharp once, uh, once you spend some time learning, learning the language. And so I guess it's really, the main problem is just, uh, just, just starting. Just getting into it. I do find that a lot of developers aren't actually taking time to practice things. They just dive into the next project and they sort of practice on the job. That real practice isn't building the app. It's, it's working through exercises and, and actually you know, learning things rather than just doing the work. Well, doing the work is also, is also a good, good, good practice. It's the best way to learn the language, but it's probably harder to start in a foreign language uh, when you're when you're starting new project, right. there's some there's some domains like data processing, uh, machine learning, writing complex calculations or uh, concurrent systems, where F sharp is is an obvious choice, and uh, it's probably a good idea to just decide I will learn F sharp for this project because the time you spent learning. Uh, You'll you'll save much more than much more than that when you're actually writing your system later on. Right, I guess yeah. When you're on the boss's dime, it's kind of hard to justify changing up a tool like that. Yeah, yeah. There's there's some domains where, uh, well, so that's that's actually partly a reason why we started this um, F Sharp Software Foundation. Right. Um, so if you go to fsharp.org. That's sort of a new new initiative coming from the F Sharp community, and uh, it's supported by the F Sharp F Sharp team in various ways, and by various commercial consultants and other people around F Sharp. Okay. And really, one of the goals of the of the Software Foundation is to have something that represents F Sharp and gives very clearly the the benefits of using it um, has some decent case studies from people who started doing their system in f sharp nice. and how they how they benefited from that in which case in which cases f sharp worked nicely for someone so so hopefully that's a that's a resource that can help people who are interested in trying f sharp convince their colleagues and their their bosses that there's some really good value in using F sharp for that. Yeah, specific. and a real sturdy community growing up around it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, it's, it's getting really big. It's really good. It is, yeah, exciting times. So, do you figure F sharp is finished? There's no more features need to be added. Don Syme can go home. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, there's, there's probably some, some time now to like stabilize the language and. Mm -hmm. Uh, don't maybe we don't need to add many new language features. No, um, but there's definitely a room for improvements. Um, but if you look at how the F# -sharp type provider mechanism works, um, that's really it's really a hugely powerful feature, and it sure. changes how you think about data access. But from the the core language perspective, it's not actually changing that much. There's, it's really, it's adding just one, one or two simple syntactic extensions, so that you can um, instantiate the type provider. 
but the rest it's just normal normal f sharp right. and you're using your dot to explore the data as usual but there's some some magic happening behind it <laughs> so i think that's that's probably a room where you can add more things without making the language more complicated right there's still features to be added there well and it's clear to me that type providers certainly uh don made that clear this is a big feature this is what takes f sharp in, in up another level is yeah. there is there any feature that you must have now that isn't there <laughs> um so so one thing i'm i'm looking into uh is f sharp has this really nice uh nice feature for checking units of measure uh -huh. So if you have some physical units, like something is in miles, something is in kilometers, uh, you don't want to uh, you don't want to crash your your spaceship just because you're adding wrong numbers. Right. And F sharp can check that using these using by annotating uh, numbers with units of measure, and then it tells you when you're adding something that's not compatible. I see. So, okay. so that's a feature that's already there, but you could add um, similar kind of things to add some to to basically uh, add more add more checking to your to your programs. So, for example, you could use similar thing to check that some code is only running on the user interface thread, while some other code is running. Uh, on the background thread, mm -hmm. that's that's a common common and easy to make mistake when you call your UI thread from your background and then something crashes. Sure. Um, so checking more more features like the more more aspects of your program, just like this background foreground thread, that's something that I'd really like to see in F sharp. That's cool. Yeah. Well, what's next for you then? What are you working on now? Um, so my my current project is the F Sharp Data Library, which is um, improving and collecting quite a lot of type providers that have been around in sort of uh, beta versions or or as samples. Um, so that has the the World Bank type provider. It has type providers for XML, CSV, JSON mm -hmm. uh, formats. Um, that's, that's, I think, that's, I think, uh, my current, current project in the F-Sharp community. And if people want to start with type providers, that's definitely a good place to look. Um, Excellent. and aside from that, um, as you, as you said in the beginning, I'm doing my PhD. So right. I have some have some papers to write, have some more research to do, and I have a dissertation to write in a year or a year and a half. You're so a busy guy. <laughs> quite a lot of work to do. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's excellent. So what is your doctoral thesis? Um, so uh, the, the title is probably something like um, Types for Context-Dependent Computations in Function Languages. Um, and the idea is, if you're if you're writing some program these days, it's probably going to be cross compiled to different platforms. Right. Yeah. Uh, it will run in different environments. Something will run on the server. Something on the client. And what I'm trying to do is to 
give you some additional tools or types that can check that your splitting is correct, basically. Uh-huh. So when you write some function that can run everywhere because it's just maybe input validation, then you want to want to know that this is function I can call from anywhere. But if you write some other function that's accessing UI or some specific UI library, then you want to know this function will only work uh, on Android or will only run in Windows Phone yeah. 8 or, or whatever. So checking these kind of properties is, is really uh, one, of the, one of the main motivations. The other is, um, or, or very similar aspect, is when you have some security information attached to your values, like something is a connection string, and then you want to be sure that you don't leak that to uh, some network communication, unsecured network communication. So propagating information and checking information about the environment, about security, and so on. That's the that's the big theme. Well, the book is F Sharp Deep Dives by Manning. It's Thomas Petrachek and Philip Trelford. Thank you very much, Tomas. Thank you. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 free minutes of developer training online. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a van by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a